0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: And it's the moment we've been waiting for that interaction with a naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, a lecturer at the University of Cambridge. He's on air to answer your questions. Some crazy questions, uh, Dr. Chris Smith. The Naked Scientist, one that flows out of a conversation that we've just had. So maybe we should start there. Good morning, Clary and Dr. Smith. Can the good doctor explain why certain songs make us emotional and sad? Solly wants uh,
1: an answer. Can you help? Morning, Clarence. Morning, Solly. The answer to this question is that the way the brain works, there are different brain regions which are specialised for doing certain tasks. And we have a region of our brain called the limbic system, which is right down in the core of the brain, at the base and and at the sides of the brain. And it is intensely and strongly connected to almost all of our senses, but it's particularly well connected to the senses which are very primitive, chiefly smell, but also hearing. And certain sounds and certain smells strongly activate this network. And when it becomes activated, it produces strong emotions. These are memories. They also uh, could include fear responses because there's a region that's part of the uh, limbic system called the amygdala, which is your fear center. And the reason for this very dense connectivity is that if you think about it, what would have made the difference between life and death over evolutionary time is the ability to learn that something is bad. Avoid that and you're more likely to survive. So therefore we make strong memories which are associated with emotions and situations. So I strongly suspect that when you hear a moving piece of music, what it does is it activates memories which may have particular attachments emotionally to them. It also strongly directly activates these limbic structures, and in this way it has the ability to transport you to a situation where you feel the emotions you would have felt or have felt when you've been in, in a particular position or in that situation in the past. So I think that's the reason that some pieces of music and some, some smells, memories, and some experiences have the ability to recreate or summon up those particular emotional experiences for us.
0: Okay, Sully that's the answer then. Let's move on to the next question. Um, let's take a voice note.
1: Hi, Lawrence. A uh, question for Dr. Cruz. Uh, with the colostomy, a uh, reversal of the colostomy, how long does it take for the bowel movement to get back to normal? And then how long does it take for the stitched bowel to the rectum take, uh, to connect after it is stitched? How long does it take for it to go back to normal? What's being asked here um, concerns the, uh, the thing or the process, the procedure called a colostomy. And this is where we need to do an operation on... In this case, the colon, the large bowel, that's, that's why it's called a colostomy. If you operate on the small bowel and do this, you do an ileostomy because you use the, the, the ileum, the small bowel. But we're talking about the colon here. This can be done for a number of reasons. One of them is that something's gone wrong downstream. So if a person has a cancer, for example, and you need to take away a piece of the bowel what you may do is remove everything down to the bottom end and therefore you need a way of controlling what would normally come out. So you bring a loop of the colon or part of the colon to the the wall of the abdomen and the contents then are collected into some kind of receptacle. That may be permanent. In some people it's just not practical to connect things back up. But sometimes we do what's called a defunctioning colostomy which is where you do that procedure and you open up a loop of the bowel or a surface part of the bowel onto the abdominal wall and collect the contents. And this means that the bit downstream gets a rest. You don't have it doing anything for a while. This can be done for a number of reasons. If you've had surgery there or there was some kind of injury or trauma or something needed to be fixed downstream or you needed to do some other refashioning because of fixing a cancer, for example, and you didn't want things going down there while you were fixing things up. But when you do then connect things back together, the healing process in the intestine is incredibly quick. And it does, I I mean, I've I've taken part in colon surgeries where people have have been stitched back together on the table there and then and they haven't had any of this done and so things then settle down. There is a period when the bowel does take a while to recover. It, It can take a number of days before things begin to move normally again and there are various reasons why that happens, but it will really depend on why the procedure was done in the first place, what lies downstream of where the procedure and the cut into the bowel had to be made, and and what and really a range of other factors that affect operative outcomes, like how old the person is, any pre-existing medical conditions and that kind of thing. But with a fair wind behind you, if everything is otherwise in good shape, then things should come back pretty quickly. And as long as the anatomy is not too disturbed and the nerve supply can reestablish itself, then it should be possible for things to get back to normal and they will reestablish quite quickly.
0: Uh, let's move on to another question via WhatsApp from Jian. She writes, Morning, Dr. Smith. Whenever my brother visits, I start calling my son and him by the same name. In other words, I get them confused, but only when they're both in town at <laughs> the same time. What would be the reason for this?
1: <laughs> when I was little, I used to go and stay with my grandma and she used to work her way through the names of all of the men and males in that side of the family in age order to get to me. And it would just happen. It wasn't It wasn't that she was doing it on purpose. It, it, she would trip her way down like a ball sort of going down a cascade <laughs> and eventually arrive at the correct name. I don't know. I can only presume that if you've got a lot of people who or people who are very similar and your brain works by using various connections and when you see a pattern of, of stimulus a particular face that looks a certain way, sounds a certain way, has certain emotional and environmental and situational connections to you you summon up memories relevant to that person and occasionally there can be a bit of miswiring which means that when you go for that word you get that word so I can only assume it's because they're so similar in terms of the situation the family connections and so on, that the normal pattern of activity that would recruit one name also pulls up both. And then the brain has a sort of quick choice to make. Which, which one is it? And then it sometimes plumps for the wrong one. Okay, then
0: a question in about the uncanny proportionality between the distance or the distances between the Earth and the Moon and the Moon and the Sun. It reads as follows. At the eclipse of the Sun, both the Moon and the Sun appear to be precisely the same size, not one larger or one smaller. Why is why this exactitude? If we were on Jupiter and Mars, would their moons also appear precisely same sized as the Sun? Or is ours the sheer magic of serendipity? Are we unique in the universe? I have been intrigued since I was a child, says Royston
1: Lemond, and it's a question that intrigues me too. Hi Royston. Well first of all what's an eclipse? Well, an eclipse, as you correctly surmise and put in your question, is when the sun and the moon are in alignment in some way, and so you see a bit missing from the sun because the moon's in the way, and it's blocking the light coming to the Earth's surface from the sun. And so the sun's disk is either partially or totally occluded, blocked, or you can't see. Now, the total eclipse, where the moon completely covers the sun... Effectively, that is serendipity. The sun is uh, is is millions. It's like over 150 million kilometres away, and the moon is about 384 thousand kilometres away. So they're vastly different in distance away from each other. One's very close to the Earth. One's very far away. But one is massive. You could pack the Earth inside the Sun about a million times. But the moon is tiny in comparison. Well, the moon is is the radius of the moon is about a quarter of the radius of the Earth. So. It's just chance, actually, that the Moon is in the right place in the sky now... Relative to the Earth and the Sun, and this means that the disk of the Moon is about the right size to block out the Sun when it gets between the Sun and the Earth, and that is down to chance. And it won't always be like that, and it wasn't always like that because when the Moon first formed, which was about 4.57 billion years ago from the collision between two planets, the early Earth and another one, which we think is what gave us the Moon, the Moon formed initially much closer into the Earth, and a whole a heap of dust and material and crust material from the Earth was like a shroud around the Earth and slowly coalesced to form our moon. And this is why we have a relatively big moon compared to other moons, which are often bodies which have been captured by big planets. You mentioned Jupiter and Saturn, very big gravitationally active planets. They've caught their moons from elsewhere that have been passing material. We made ours That's why it's so big. But when it first formed, it formed very close to the Earth. But because the Moon is taking energy away from the Earth, the Earth spins every day inside the orbit of the Moon. This has a slingshot effect on the Moon. We are giving some of Earth's rotational momentum to the Moon. This is having the effect of driving the Moon farther and farther away from the Earth. It's going further away by about two centimetres every year. And we know that because there's a mirror on the Moon's surface put there by the Apollo missions, and there's a laser beam being bounced off of it from the Earth, and we can measure very accurately how long that journey takes. Therefore, we know how far away the Moon is. So the Moon's moving farther away, and as the Moon gets farther away, it becomes a smaller and smaller speck on the horizon. So in the early era, the Moon would have been much bigger relative to us when we look at it in the sky than it is now, and it's just down to chance that it's now just about the right size to completely blot out the sun during an eclipse. Then we have
0: Ronnie on the line from Grotto Bay. Welcome, Ronnie. Um, my question is: so I'm an avid golfer, and I think most golfers know that uh, the dimples on a golf ball make it go farther. So my question is that: why is that the case, and why do the sizes of the dimples differ on the golf ball?
1: Thank you, Ronnie. Hello, Ronnie. Uh, I'm a terrible golfer. So I take my hat off and tip my hat to you, uh, if you if you're able to even hit the ball because I made a terrible mess of the golf course and I was effectively asked perhaps I'd like to consider gardening instead because that would be cheaper and would be better for every other player. Uh, so I don't, I don't do golf. But the reason they have those dimples is, as Ronnie says, they affect the trajectory of the ball. So let's ignore golf for a minute and just think about a flying ball. When a ball goes flying through the air, the air sticks to the curved surface of the ball because any curved surface will pull a fluid down onto its surface, and air is a fluid. So as the ball goes through the air, the air tries to stick to the ball. And as it goes along, the air sticks equally all around the ball. But if the ball is spinning... Which can happen when you whack the ball, and if you watch a tennis player at Wimbledon you'll put the, you'll see they put massive amounts of of spin on the ball in order to get control over where the ball goes down on the opposite side of the court. If the ball's spinning, as the air sticks to the surface, the air is pulled around with the ball, and as the air is pulled around with the ball, because you 're pulling on the air, the air is pulling on the ball that 's isaac newton 's third law, and therefore you will get a force. On the ball, which will affect the direction the ball follows, and this is how the tennis players when you when you watch them put top spin on their ball they're able to plant it just inside the line because they have worked out how that force or they through training know how that force is going to affect the trajectory of the ball now here 's the wrinkle that force is not applied equally at all speeds of the ball because when something goes very fast through the air, it goes so quickly that you get turbulence all over the ball because it goes faster than the air can stick to the surface of the ball and that turbulence means that you don't get any of that sticking effect as the ball slows down though the air can stick to the surface and be pulled around the curve and therefore affect the trajectory and this means that you get different forces on the ball at different speeds and that makes it hard to control or you can use that to good effect. So with the golf ball, by putting those dimples all over the surface, what you're doing is creating areas like vortices because as the air goes over those rough dimpled surface, you get little vortices all over the ball. This stirs up the air and it disrupts that sticking effect so that the ball flies in a straight line for longer at a range of speeds compared to if it then began to slow down, get air sticking to its surface and that would pull it down towards the ground.
0: Let's go to Barris in Bloberg. Go ahead, Barris. Yeah, i a question. I was busy driving just now and I had a headache. What if it was, I take my back of my fingers and I press against my neck, uh, obviously on the blood artery or something to that effect, and it disappears? So the question is what is a headache? Is it something in your brain with an artery? And also, does high blood pressure have an effect on headaches?
1: Hello, Barris. Well, you've really sort of hit the nail on the head, if you'll excuse the pun, because what you're pointing to is that there are a range of different reasons why we experience head pain. The commonest kind of headache, the kind that when we have a hard day and we say, oh, I've got a frightful headache, stress or tension headaches are because we sit there with our muscles taut and you, you effectively have got referred pain into your head from tense muscles and a hard day. Other common causes metabolic if you don't drink enough it's very hot you get dehydrated you effectively make your tissues and your brain shrink inside your skull and this causes a headache as well so being well hydrated is important then there are things like you mentioned arteries yes if you have got an artery which bursts inside your head and this causes a bleed then this is excruciatingly painful and people talk about a thunderclap headache because it's literally like someone hit them around the head with a plank of wood and then they they can sometimes lose consciousness they often do and this is because you you tear the lining of the blood vessel blood goes into the space around the brain which is full of nerves not the i know the brain's full of nerves but the tissue around the brain has lots of sensory nerves the meninges and that's why. Those sorts of injuries or insults are incredibly painful. Then there's things like infection, meningitis, where you have either a virus, most commonly, or sometimes, rarely, thankfully, bacterial infection in those meninges, the layers around the brain. They're inflamed and they've got lots of sensory nerves. And as a result of that, you then get a pain sensation. And then there's things like electrical disturbances in the brain things like a migraine or a cluster headache. And under those circumstances, we have a vague understanding probably of what's going on. We think that you get some kind of initial electrical disturbance in certain parts of the brain, which then causes a painful opening up of the blood vessels in that brain territory, which irritates the meninges, again, those sensory, those, rich, those layers around the brain richly endowed with sensory nerves. And that causes pain in, in that part of the brain. So there's a whole range of different reasons why we get headaches, which range from the very trivial and common through to life-threatening. And it's very important if you have a new symptom and something happens, you, you go and get it checked out. But if it's a commonal garden headache that you've been having all your life, then you can probably manage that with sen- sensible, simple remedies like a paracetamol.
0: Let's go to Zuki. Zuki's on the line. Popping balloons, Zuki. Hi, Clarence, and hi, Dr. Chris. So, I've recently discovered these videos where doctors are able to um, inject a fully blown-up balloon without popping it, and I, I really need explanation as to how that is possible.
1: Ah, Zuki, watch the trick that they use. If you see where they stick the needle, they'll go in through the end of the balloon, and if you go in through the side, it will go bang. If you go in through the end... The tension there is different because of the shape of the balloon and there's a greater reserve of rubber at the end and so you've got more to play with and you don't then get a tear in the in the rubber, which causes the, the balloon to pop catastrophically. The other way of doing it is to stick some sticky tape on the surface of the balloon and then put the needle through. And the reason this works and the reason it works at the end of the balloon rather than through the side is it's all down to how stretched the material is. And as soon as you make a breach in the material, you then create a crack or a tear, which as it pulls apart, you then get more force exerted on the margins of that tear which then tears a bit more which tears a bit more and you then get a catastrophic feedback a bit like a sausage unpeeling and this is why if you look at an aircraft the windows are always round or a boat has portholes because if you put something which has got sharp corners onto an object which is under a lot of stress then you've got a point of, of a concentration of forces at the areas of the corners whereas if you have a circle then there is no corner, so there's no concentration of force. The force is better balanced in a circle, and therefore you don't get an opening up of of a tear, and then a concentration of force at that margin, and then that unpeeling effect.
0: Then we got Mel on the line as well. She wants to speak about enlarged hearts. Go ahead, Mel. Hello. Thank you for taking me. Is an enlarged heart dangerous? And if so, why?
1: Oh, hello, you, well. Um The answer is it can be, but not always. If I go to the Olympics or I go to the Rugby World Cup and I measure the cardiac output, how much is coming out of the heart of the persons on the pitch or on the track, I'm going to measure something which is in some cases double what I would get for an average person walking down the street in Cape Town. Uh, that is because they have trained and just like your brain and, and muscles around your body, the more you use something, the better honed it becomes at doing its job and the heart gets bigger in response to being driven by exercise and training. So you will have a large heart, but that's muscularly large, but within healthy limits. On the other hand, if we find people who, for instance, have got high blood pressure, or have got a problem with one of the valves that's coming out of the heart, which means that the heart has to work a lot harder in order to push blood around the body, because it's chronically working very hard against an abnormally heavy-duty load, you get pathological enlargement of the heart. And this in, it enlarges by laying down more muscle. And if you measure the thickness of the wall of the heart chamber, it's much bigger than it should be. We know what the, the healthy limit is. Well, these muscles can become double that sometimes. They get big, fat and beefy. The other reason a heart can enlarge is if it stops working very well, it fails. And as, as a general rule, the more you stretch a heart, the harder it works and the more it pushes blood out up to a point. And this is because it, as you enlarge the heart or, or fill it harder, you pull the fibres in the heart muscle into better interdigitation to get more force out. But if you then go too far and push too much blood into the heart and make it too big, you start to lose that interdigitation and you reduce the force the heart makes. And so you get to a point where putting more blood in starts to cause the heart to just get bigger. And not produce more force. And so, the other reason a heart can be too big, apart from having too much muscle, is it can have too much blood in it and it stretches and becomes a large, failing heart. And when we do a chest x ray, we can see that someone's heart looks too big on the x ray. So, in some circumstances, having an enlarged heart is perfectly normal and a reflection on what you do for a living professionally. On the other hand, and particularly in people with underlying disease processes, getting a big, fat, beefy heart can be bad news and a sign of an underlying disease. And if it then begins to swell up because it's filling up with too much blood that it can't eject, that's a failing heart and that's definitely bad news.
0: Okay, we're running out of time. But if you can venture a very short answer to this question, I love watching documentaries about wild horses. Tame horses need their hooves maintained. But obviously wild horses don't. Why? Adam in Weinberg with that question
1: Hi Adam, well horses first evolved something like 30 million years ago and they've been very successful as a species ever since and there are many hoofed animals that are equines like horses and of course there are no farriers who go around offering shoes and and, uh, toenail clipping service for them so obviously nature has endowed them with the ability to maintain their own feet but with modern day horses we've bred them, we've selected them and therefore we have changed what the wild equivalent would be by breeding them to have certain traits and characteristics just as we've done for dogs and once you start bringing human selection into the process some of that natural restoring effect and natural behaviour that nature would have provided is lost and so in the same way that if I start growing a garden I'm then committed to pulling out the weeds if you start growing animals that you've selected for sizes, shapes, certain characteristics you're then going to have to start selecting or providing a service to maintain the things that, that nature no longer can provide.
0: We're going to have to rest it there. But a big thank you, Dr. Chris Smith, our Naked Scientist.
1: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.